chapter 3, we're going to call it a tale of two gods. And our key thought is going to be this. And that this chapter is not just about worshiping the right God and not the wrong one. But it's more than that. It's about worshiping the right God in the right way. Daniel takes place in 6th century BC. Babylon is the superpower of its day, kind of like America is in our day. And the way that it functioned when they conquered a nation like Babylon, when they conquered Israel, they would take uh, possession of the professional classes, the artisans, the, the nobility, the people that were upper echelon in the society and culture, and they would take them back to Babylon in exile. And their program was really a subjugation through assimilation. In other words, they just didn't dominate you, try to wipe you out from the face of the earth. Instead, they had a different idea that they would use over time. They would take people like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They would take them away from Israel, take them to Babylon. And over the process of time, maybe a generation or two, they would teach them Babylonian morals and Babylonian values and try to get them to take on a Babylonian identity. And they thought that over time, eventually, they would see how good the way of life is in Babylon And they would lose their values, their morals, their identity, and take on Babylonian ones. And then the conflict between Babylon and the conquered nation would therefore be over. That was the idea. And in light of that, I think Nebuchadnezzar, in order to unite all the various captives and the conquered nations that were being assimilated to Babylon in that time, decides after chapter 2 and hearing the dream that he got from God that he would build this gold image. If you read the text, you'll find that the gold image is 90 feet tall. Make that about three times higher than the ceiling here in our auditorium. And it's only nine feet wide, so it probably wasn't the image of a man. It was probably some sort of obelisk or something uh, that everyone could see for miles around. It was of gold because the head of gold in his dream represented himself. So he thought, hey, I am the most important guy around And everybody can gather around and what they'll find is they can center in and worship and that will bring everybody together. I read the text and I asked the question, well, what does this image mean? And I read it very carefully. And you know, unlike all the rest of the Babylonian gods, this statue or this image is not given a name. Instead, it's put in a very public place and with it there is an orchestra And the idea was that if you were in the vicinity, you were anywhere around where you could see the image, and the music starts up, that you were to bow down and worship. And that would unite and bring everybody together. And if you didn't, you read the story for yourself, you would be thrown into the fiery furnace. Now, to understand what this is all about, let me point out, I think, one little key word in a key verse. It doesn't look like much, but it really is. Let me read it for you again. Chapter 3. Actually, let me read it for you the first time. Here in verse 14. It says, Nebuchadnezzar asked them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods? Now the next word is or, but in Hebrew that little word has multiple meanings. It could be or, it could also be by. Let me read it for you with that preposition instead. Now if you are, he says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods, by worshiping the golden image which I have set up. I think in my reading and my understanding of the text is that 
the statue or the image of gold represented all the Babylonian gods. Not just one or one in particular, but it represented all of them. And that's why he says, see, you worship my gods. If you worship this statue, it really represents all of Babylonian culture. All that Babylon stands for. And because it represented everything, then it didn't matter what nation you were from. Who you were captive. See, everyone could bow down to this and agree that this was the God representing everybody's God. Now listen, here's what that means. And please hear this. Nebuchadnezzar is not asking these three men to worship his gods instead of their God. He's not asking that. What he's asking them to do is to worship his gods in addition to to their God. See the difference? He's not saying that your God doesn't exist. In fact, he's already proven that before in chapter 2 when Daniel saw the dream. He knows that he, but here's what he's saying. I know your God exists, but I want you to put your God in with all the other gods so that everybody can think the same and we can have some unity. So let me unpack it by saying this first. Worshiping the right God in the right way means this. There is no privatizing of your faith. Okay? Here's what Nebuchadnezzar wants to say to them. Do whatever you want in private, but when you are in public, fall in line with everybody else or else. That's what he's saying. He's saying this. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I know you believe in this God of the bot, quote unquote, but you need to privatize that faith. That's just something you do privately on your own. But when you're out in public and the music plays, you do what everybody else does. See, can I tell you, listen, that is not, listen, far from what's taking place in our culture in America. Our culture in America says, hey, you want to believe in Jesus? You want to believe in the Bible? That's all well and good. But when you're out in public, when you're around everybody else, you better believe the way that we believe or else. They want you to say this as a Christian. Don't talk about exclusive claims. Don't talk about absolute truth. Don't say this stuff about there only being one God and one way to heaven and one worldview and one kind of morality. Don't start talking that way in public. You may believe that Bible stuff in private, but when you're in public, here's what you need to do. Bow down just like everybody else. Example, if you live in the business world, See, when you study the Bible and you read the Sermon on the Mount and you hear Jesus talk about meekness, power under control, about putting people first, loving someone above yourself, being a peacemaker, turning the other cheek. See, when you do that, but then when you go to work, you're ruthless about your job like everybody else. You're cutthroat like everybody else. The bottom line is success. And if you have to run over people and stomp them in the ground so that you'll be improving and you'll be successful, see, you have already bowed down. See, when you have good speech normally and you are not a person who fills their language and communication with cussing and foul language and you don't tell jokes that have double meanings with sexual entendre in them, And that's how you are at home. But see, when you're a young person and you go to school and you're with your friends and you completely change all that and you talk like they talk, tell their jokes, laugh at their stuff, see, you have bowed down. 
See, when you're kind at home and you treat your parents and you say these sort of things and you you treat your brother and sister a certain way and you try to be nice as best you can, but see, when you go out on the ball field and you're playing sports, see, you drop all that and you become overly aggressive and you're going to win the game and you trash talk people and you use what their language is and even if you have to hurt someone, you know you're not supposed to cut them down like that, but you do. Why? Because you're going to win at any cost. See, you've already bowed down because you're like everybody else. So you can believe privately, the world wants to say, that the Bible is true. But when you're in public, they'll tell us as Christians today, in our churches today, you, you better tolerate homosexual marriage as if it's acceptable. You better believe that transgenderism is legitimate. You better believe and go along with the fact that abortion is a woman's right. And evolution is really the best scientific view of how to view everything in our world. See, that's what everybody believes. And you want to believe that Sunday stuff about going to church and you go to church and and all that stuff? You can do all that. But when you get in our world, you better fall down and worship like everybody else. There was an independent survey done of research, and it was called Sexuality in America. There were two groups of men that were surveyed. Both groups were unmarried, educated with a college degree, and all of them were between 18 and 23 years old. One half of the group was raised in a community as they grew up where sex outside of marriage was wrong. The other group was raised in a community and in a household where sex outside of marriage wasn't wrong. 23% of those who grew up where it was not wrong to have sex, I mean, it's okay, 23% alone. That's all that were still virgins, 18 to 23. You know, when they, they interviewed or they talked to all the people who believed and they grew up in a culture where it was wrong to have sex outside of a marriage, you know what the difference was? It was 28%. 23, 28 there's really no negligible difference. How does that happen? See, your church tells you something, like you're hearing today, and then your culture tells you something, and here's what's true of most Christians. You listen to your culture. You know why? Because we are a generation who are bowing down. We are assimilating into our culture. We are buying our view, their views. Why? Because it's easier to be Babylonian. It's easier to be American. And we are becoming just like everything, everybody else. But listen, not true for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were three young men who were probably older teenagers at this point, And they were unwilling, emphatically unwilling, to privatize their faith. Now listen, before you get going too far in your mind, these three guys did not bow down because, you know, they had, well, you know what, they lived in this Christian environment and all they saw most of the time was, no, these guys went to Babylon University. They had government positions of high rank. They were embedded in in, in Babylonian culture. And they had nothing that was private in their life. And they said, including our faith. 
See, they're not just people separated in a little Christian ghetto. They are out there in the middle of the workforce doing everything like everybody else. But when they were asked to keep your faith private and bow down like everybody else, they categorically refused. Can I tell you this? If you don't know it already, you and I are under the exact same pressure. You're sitting in science class at school and they talk about evolution about millions and billions of years ago and that we happened by accident and we are... We come from monkeys, and too many Christians in our high schools and our universities today just shake your head and go along with it as if it might be true. You've bowed down. My sister Michelle is an executive for a company, and she told me this story a couple years ago where they came up to all the executives in their offices on this one floor, and they went around, and it was a special day, and they had rainbow colors representing all the homosexual agenda and everything, and they went around and they were putting them on everyone's office door. So they came to my sister's office and knocked on the door, and they said, hey, just want to let you know, we're just putting this on the door like everybody else. And my sister said, no, you're not. She said, they go, what do you mean? She goes, she goes I don't believe in that. I, I don't believe that's true, and I'm not supporting it. And the lady was astounded. And she said, but everybody else is doing it. And my sister said, oh, I know that but I won't be like everybody else. And she goes, well, I'm going to have to turn this into your superior. And my sister said, you're going to have to turn this into my superior. And they took it away, and they never, she never heard another word. But I said, you know what? In our culture today, see, this is what they want. You in public, bow down. But see, here's the truth. If you worship the right God in the right way, it means you don't privatize your faith. So let me say it plainly to you. If you never get, and I say this metaphorically, it could be literal, but metaphor, if you never get a bloody nose, if you never take one on the chin because you're living for Jesus, chances are you've already bowed down. So the story that we're having today in Daniel 3 is this, is that God wants you to worship him and not just worship him and not the false gods of the world, of Babylon, of America, but he wants you to worship him and he wants you to worship him in the right way. And that means, here's part of what it means to be the right way. That we don't privatize our faith. We don't hide from our faith. Secondly, if you look at verses 16 and follow, this is my favorite part of the text. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, verse 16, answered and said, now listen to this. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Not that we don't need to say anything. You know what? Here's what they said. We really don't need to say anything because you know where we stand. And listen for them. Listen, you know what it means? There was no hesitation. They didn't have to think about it. They didn't say, oh, you want us to bow down? Well, give us a couple days. Let us go back and pray about it. The fiery furnace, that's a lot of consequence. Let us really consider. No, not even a moment. They didn't hesitate for a second. Why? Hear me. Because they had decided a long time ago who was God in their life. They didn't wait to confront being confronted at school. They didn't wait till sitting in the science class at the university. They didn't wait till their boss asked them on a business trip to go along and be like all the other guys in the places you go after work. They didn't wait for that. They had already predetermined. They had settled it in their minds. There is one true living God. And I worship him alone no matter what. If this be so... Our God, whom we serve, now notice the text, is able. He has the power. He has the divine ability. He can rescue us out of your hand, he says. 
and he will. See the next verb? He will. So either this way or this way. God is going to deliver us out of your hand. We, uh, we know that absolutely for sure. And then verse 18 tops it off. There, there are very few people who have this kind of faith. But if not. See, they're saying this. And this is what the story wants to ask if you could say. We're going to worship God whether we live or whether we die. No matter what, in either case, we're worshiping him alone. See, these young men had decided that they would worship God, listen, hear me, for who he is, period. Not for God plus something. Have you ever heard someone say this to you? You know, I've had talk to me. Pastor Walker, you know, I come to church and, you know, I'm pretty faithful at reading my Bible and I'm trying to live for God. And then something came up in my life and, and I prayed and I asked God to do this and he didn't come through for me. And I wanted to say to them, well, what you really trusted in was your own personal agenda. See, you trusted in not God, but what you wanted God to do for you. People do it all the time. They don't trust in God, period. They trust in God plus. God plus giving me a good job. God plus giving us a baby so that my wife can get pregnant. God plus a really good marriage. God plus physical health and no real major illnesses. God plus financial security so that I'm not up in the air about whether I'll have my house next month. God plus really good friends and a really good life. And see, what we need to do and what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did is they said, we trust God, period. Just because, listen to this, just because he's worth it. Just because he's God. Not because we get anything out of him. A.W. Tozer has a quote, and he calls this the view of having a utilitarian God. Listen to Tozer. But the God we must see is not the utilitarian God. And that, all that means is a God that we use. Whose chief claim to men's affections is his ability to bring them success. In other words, the only reason they want God in their life is because they think he's going to give them something they can't get on their own. And so he says, in, this various, in their various undertakings, and for, for who that, I'm sorry, and who for that reason is being conjoled and flattered by everyone who wants a favor. In other words, you know why they come and sing? You know why they come and pray? You know why they come and give in the offering? You know why they come and worship? Because they're conjoling him. They're trying to manipulate, move him, flatter him. God, you're so great. Here's why. Because they want a favor from him, he says. They want something from him. So let me ask you, why did you come here today? Why did you come here? For God, period? Or God plus? Which one? See, I came here today if I'm God plus the people I like to talk to and see. Or did you come here today because God plus the music that I want to hear? Or God plus the programs that they have? Or God plus the sermon I want to hear? God plus... 
or was it just God, period? Hear me, not because the music and seeing people and talking to them or enjoying the programs or hearing a sermon, all of those are good things, but they are nothing compared to him. Nothing. So what would happen if the program wasn't as good anymore? And what happens if the sermon isn't what you like, perhaps like today? What about the music if it isn't up to par? Do you still come? Do you come for God, period, or God plus? You see, if we haven't settled that issue, here's what can happen. We start complaining about all this, and it isn't that, and it isn't more that, and I want that. And we wane in our commitment to faithfulness to God and his work. And then we say, I start using God. I use God here and I use God there to get what I want and my agenda and how I look at things and how I want what I want. See, and it all becomes about us and Tozer warns us that it has to be God, period. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they came to this realization that God, you can deliver us. Ultimately, you will deliver us. And if you deliver us from death, we're okay with that. If you deliver us, hear me, through death, we're also okay with that. And we're okay with both. Both forms, God. Both forms of rescue are okay with us. You know what that means for them? You know what it can mean for you? For them it meant this. Before they were physically fireproof, they became spiritually fireproof. You know why? Because they trusted God alone You know how liberating that is? You know what the freedom it gives to you? That you're not trying to find pleasure and satisfaction in anyone or anything other than God himself. And therefore, no one can harm you. You're not worried about the consequences. You're not worried about what other people say. Why? Because it's all about God. Period, he says. Period. You can have that too. You can be spiritually fireproof in your life. When you trust God for who he is and not just for what he can do for you. And by the way, isn't that what you want? Isn't it true? Do you want people to love you for your looks or for your money? See, my wife made a mistake. She loved me for my looks. (laughs) And it fades away. You know, I once was really good looking. It's hard to believe that. Yeah, I know, I know. But see, if, you, if you're good looking or you're muscular or you're, you have money, it's going to fade away. It's going gonna, it's gonna to go away. And you wouldn't want someone to love you that. Don't you lo- want them to love them, love you because of who you are or maybe more particularly who you are in Christ? Don't you want that? Listen, don't you want that? Then why should God be any different? See, he wants you to love me, love him because he's worthy, because he's God. So worshiping the right God in the right way means this, no privatization of your faith. It means that we love God for who he is, not what we get from him. And lastly, can I tell you this as we close? This kind of worship, this kind of faith, It's always going to be tested. If you read verses 19 through 30, it says that Nebuchadnezzar, hearing they wouldn't bow down, heated the furnace 
seven times hotter. Now, it's probably hyperbole. Remember in the chapter one, it says they were 10 times better. It wasn't that they somehow had a way of measuring that they're 10 times better. What it means is they are so much better than everybody else, it wasn't even funny. And what it means here is that Nebuchadnezzar is firing up his furnace because he wants the furnace to be as hot as his anger because he's really upset. He's really upset. So he gets his best soldiers to take them and throw them in the fire. Now the Bible goes into detail about they're dressed in their turban, they have all their clothes on, and, and everything from head to toe. These guys who are the soldiers try to get as close as they can, but they end up all dying. I mean, it's that hot. I mean, they can't even get close to flames, and they all die. But then he says, in astonishment, do you see what's going on down there? I mean, the soldiers couldn't even get into the furnace or near the furnace, and they die. But here is Shadrach, Meshach. They are not only in the midst of, which is over and over again, the midst of the fiery furnace. But the Bible says they are unbound, and they're walking around. In other words, they're in the fire, but they have freedom. They're walking around. And before, earlier, he said, and who is a God that's going to rescue me? In other words, there is no God who can rescue you from the fiery furnace seven times. There is no God like that. He was wrong. He was wrong. You know, in the Bible, furnaces and fire equate with suffering. And what the Bible says is that is part of what it means to be a Christian. 1 Peter 4.12 says it this way. Beloved, do not be surprised. You need to memorize this verse. Trust me. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though, listen to this, as though something strange were happening to you. As I counsel people about trials and fires and furnaces that come into their life, I can tell you this, it's true of Americans more than anybody else in the world, we do not expect it to happen. We don't. Half of the devastation in people's lives is not the event that devastates them as much as the fact that they don't think the event should have taken place. They say things like, I'm living for Jesus. I'm doing the best I can. Why in the world would God allow this to happen? And I say, Jesus lived a perfect life and suffered infinitely more than any one of us will ever suffer. Why should you get a pass? But hot furnaces in our lives, God has purposes for them. They are for spiritual formation. In other words, they will make you Build your character and your integrity and your spiritual stamina and strength. But they are also, hear me, not only for spiritual formation, they are for spiritual information. Meaning this, they reveal your character. And if I had to be truthfully honest with you, I think they do the latter far more than the former. I think they reveal who you are more than make you who you are most times. You can really never know who you really are until you are tested. In the furnace. Until you get the diagnosis, it's cancer. Until your spouse, out of the blue, at least in your mind, leaves a note on the table, we're done. Until you lose your job and you're given two weeks and you have no other place to go. Until your children rebel and tell you one day, I want nothing to do with God. Until things don't go your way at home, at school, in your career that you imagine for yourself, in your church. See, you really don't know who you are until, 
until the fire comes and you're in the furnace for yourself. Remember, furnaces don't automatically make us more like Jesus. We have to trust him in them. We have to trust him. And when we trust him alone, not for what he can give us, but for who he is, it'll make a difference. Isaiah 43, 2, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, I will be with you. He says, and when you walk through the fires, they will not burn you. They will not overwhelm you because I am with you, God says. See, God says this, you trust me, you live for me, period. Not plus, period. He said, you may go through the rivers and the waters and it may, may overcome everyone else and burn everybody else, but not you. You know why? Because I will be with you. Who was that fourth man in the fire? Nebuchadnezzar in verse 25 says, well, he was a son of the gods. But then he says a little bit more in verse 28. He says, praise and bless the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Worship him. Why? Because he has sent his angel. And in the Bible, there are angels he sends, but there is one angel that's different than all the other ones. It's the angel of the Lord. This is what the Bible, I would call a theophany, or in this case, I believe a Christophany. This is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. So who is in the furnace with them? Jesus is there with them. Which makes me ask this question. How do you and I keep the furnace from deforming us? How do we have it just not be something that is informing us of who we are? How do we make it into something that is forming us to be more like Jesus? The answer is you have to remember that Jesus was thrown into the ultimate furnace for you so that he could be with you in your lesser furnace. Jonathan Edwards, the Puritan, wrote a sermon. You should read it sometime. The name of it is Christ's Agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jonathan Edwards wrote this. Jesus was in Gethsemane, and here's what he says about him. He had a near view of that furnace of wrath when he was in the garden, into which he would himself be cast. He was brought to the mouth of that furnace that he might look into it and stand and view its raging flames. And then he says this. It was a furnace vastly more terrible than Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace. Jesus saves us from the furnace of God's wrath that he might meet us in the furnaces of Nebuchadnezzar. Can I tell you today, you know how you get through furnaces and how you let God use them to make you more like him? You realize that the greatest furnace, the one hotter than any other furnace, the one of God's wrath that was against you, Jesus himself has taken the brunt of all of that when he died on Calvary. He died for our sins. And can I say it to you nicely? Jesus didn't suffer so that you wouldn't have to. That's not the purpose. Jesus suffered so that in your suffering, he could make you more like him. He did not keep them 
from the furnace. And he will not keep you from all the furnaces that you might face. But know this, if you trust him, if you trust him alone and live for him and you worship him, no matter what, he will not keep you from the furnaces, but he will be with you in them. Because his desire, and can I go so far as to say his design, is to make you more like Jesus. I don't know this morning what furnace that you walk in. I don't know how hot the flames that you experience are. But I know this, if Lord Jesus is your Savior, then he has taken the ultimate furnace for you, far and vastly more terrible than anything Nebuchadnezzar or this world could dish out. And he will deliver you. He will. But the question is, are you okay with how he will do it? Have you submitted your life completely to him and say this to him, God, I love you. And if you don't give me this and you don't give me that and you don't answer the prayer I thought and things don't turn out and this isn't working for me and this and this and this and this, God, I love you still. I worship you still. You are still supreme in the affections of my heart. That's what God's looking for. Question is, is that true in your life? Will you worship God alone no matter what? Let's pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around, we're going to sing our closing hymn, a simple chorus. I chose it mainly for the last verse, but I give all to you. The last verse says, I give all my worship to you. And I don't mean Sunday mornings. Worship is what we do in everything in our life. Everything's a worship issue because everything is a God issue. And the question is, do you worship him alone? Are you assimilating into America? Do you try to hold your beliefs in private? Well, but when it comes to school or my job or when I'm with my friends or I'm trying to get a date or trying to become a success at work, well, it's quite another thing. He says, don't privatize your faith. God says, don't utilize me. Don't try to use me to get what you want. Worship me because of my infinite value and worth for who I am. If it hasn't been already, it will be tested. And that test will reveal the truth of the answers to those questions. Not what you verbally say this morning, but the reality of it. And I encourage you and implore you, you know the time to make the change? To decide now what you're going to be and what you're going to do and how you're going to worship is now. Before you're faced with the furnace. Before the fire gets stoked and heated hotter. Decide now. God, I worship you supremely and only, no matter what. Father, you deserve nothing short of that. You deserve the praise of all that you've created. Creation, the angels, and those people, especially us, who've been made in your image. We have been your called out people. You have sent your son to die in our place, to rise again for our justification. And Paul says that would mean this, that we no longer live for ourselves, but for him who was raised for us on the third day.
Father, help us as we live in our Babylon in America that we wouldn't be assimilated, that we wouldn't bow down, but categorically and emphatically with love, we might say, God alone in the center of my heart. Please help us to that end, we ask for Christ's sake. Amen. 595, if you'll stand and sing.